Welcome to the Auditorium, a portal to the fringes of culture. Hello and welcome to the Auditorium podcast, number 15, with myself, Dr. David Bramwell, and our co-host, who... I don't know what he's doing. Um, Dave, Dave, what what are you... Just pass me that balloon, would you? There we go. That's lovely. Pop Um, that in. We've got uh, got a podcast to make. Don't want to hurry you or anything. Yeah, no, no, no. But I'm thinking long term, Dave. I'm thinking long term. Podcast, you know, that's going to be over in half an hour. Uh, how is a what's what's a long term about a balloon? What else have you got there? Well, it's balloon in a box. What is this stuff? This is all for my my time capsule. You're I'm, doing a time capsule. I want to know. Yeah, like I want something you know permanent that lives beyond me. You know, that goes into the future. It's like a little bit of me. Something well, that's says something about kids, me. Isn't it? Oh, book. Okay, got Victoria Beckham learning to fly. Fantastic book. Probably. Probably best book of the decade, that one. And a set of plugs. I like to think plugs are, you know, they're part of me. And a cup of coffee, there we go. So, so in, in, into your time capsule is... Yes. A plug, Yeah. a balloon, a cup of coffee, and Victoria Beckham's learning to fly. And this is to be found by people in the future. In a thousand years' time, they're going to open that, and they're going to get a little snapshot into my life, Dave. And They the- are indeed, aren't they? <laughs> Where are you going to bury it? I was thinking there's a, there's a landfill near me. I can just chuck it in there and it's get dug in eventually. You know, sooner or later, we're all, we're all worm meat, aren't we? We're all going down the big toilet. But what about our children's children and their children's 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 children and, and all that? The long... What are, we, what are we doing now for them? The long term. That's what I'm about now for, this, for the purposes of this broadcast anyway. And you've, you've been inspired, haven't you, by, by, by today's talk? I have. I really have. And it and it's called the long now. Yeah, and which isn't about going no. This is a talk that was given by Rowan Dent of Brighton's Catalyst Club back in September two thousand fourteen, I believe. So here she is, Rowan Dent on the long now. When I was seven years old, I was struck by the fact that there was a time before I existed, and that that time would go on long after I was dead. And if. Seven sounds a little late for this epiphany. Remember that I didn't yet have that platitude of generations. I didn't know that there might be little Rowans and that um, I might be able to teach them how to climb trees and tune engines and read Beowulf. Um, And then then death might not be so bad. I did believe that life stopped with me. I didn't know what life was before or after me and what it would look or smell or taste like. But this revelation started me on a quest for the future and it got me thinking a rather curious question. Do we actually believe in the future? How do we think about it? How can we think about it? How do we think about 100, 1,000, 10,000 years into the future? And if we can't think about it, then how can we possibly plan for it? I think part of this issue is that civilization seems to be revving itself into a pathologically short attention span. A lot is made of the acceleration of technology resulting in an instant gratification culture, but what about the short horizon perspective of market-driven economics or the next election perspective of democracy? I started wondering whether it was possible to extend our concept of the future beyond that weary phrase, our children's children. 
And when researching this talk, the first real-life example of long-term thinking I found was actually Trinity College Cambridge and its £1.7 million wine cellar, where they keep 10,000 or more bottles of wine at a time and keep them for 50 or 100 years before cracking them out to toast in Latin at antiquated traditions, which wasn't quite what I was looking for. After a bit more scrabbling around, I came across a forest in Norway which houses the Future Library Project. This forest will supply paper for a special anthology of books to be printed in 100 years' time. Between now and then, one writer every year will contribute a text, with the writings staying unpublished in trust until 2114. Which is all well and good, but what about really long periods of time? I stumbled across the Long Now Foundation during one of those late-night Wikipedia link trails where you start clicking and clicking and finding out things that you never knew existed and some things that you wish didn't exist. It felt a little bit like exploring vast tracts of uncharted wilderness. The Long Now Foundation was started by supercomputer engineer Danny Hillis, writer Stuart Brand and musical juggernaut Brian Eno. They, like me, were dissatisfied with this short-term thinking world and they decided to set up an institution for the principle of long-term thinking. But they didn't start small. They started with the creation of a 300-metre-tall clock, which is designed to keep time for 10,000 years. It's powered by seasonal changes, by changes in temperature. It ticks once a year, it bongs once a century, and the cuckoo clock comes out every millennium. Every once in a while, the bells of this buried clock play a melody. But each time the chimes ring, it's a melody that the clock has never played before. It's programmed that it will never repeat its chimes for 10,000 years. The clock rings when a visitor has wound it, but it also hoards energy so that it will chime with no one around to hear it. It's buried in the Sierra Diablo mountain range in West Texas, and it takes an entire day's pilgrimage to reach it. So how does it work? To be quite honest with you, I don't understand how it works. <laughs> the website says it consists of a specially designed gear system which has a precision equal to one day in 20,000 years, and it self-corrects by phase-locking to the noon sun. But it's no less significant is its location. It's located in a mountain which is covered by a forest of ancient bristlecone pines, which are some of the world's oldest organisms. Some of these trees are almost 5,000 years old. And equally, 10,000 years is not a random number. 10,000 years separates us from the first makers of pottery. It's the length of time that, historically at least, a climate ought to stay stable. And most importantly, to me at least, we can't make any guesses, educated or otherwise, as to what life will be like in 10,000 years' time. Because we just don't know. To put the future into context, 10,000 years ago we were living in the very first cities. But we might not have recognised them as cities. Katalhoyuk is one of the earliest cities. It was made up of higgledy-piggledy collection of houses, all built one on top of each other. There were no streets, no windows. They shared the same walls. They, uh, they communicated by climbing onto each other's roofs and going down through a system of ladders. And they didn't 
um, really, they didn't really live in the way that we would understand living in a city to be. They buried their bodies underneath their beds. They appeared to have had no royal, religious, or gender-based hierarchy. They decorated their houses with auric horns, and when a house needed to be destroyed, they simply pulled it down and built on top, creating this slightly peculiar system of, of elevated houses. 10,000 years ago, we were still trying and failing to domesticate the goat. We didn't have a written language. We lived amongst mammoths, megatheriums, and mastodons. So it's rather exciting to think that in 10,000 years' time, this clock might still be ticking underneath a mountain, even though we might not know what the surface of that mountain would look like. But the 10,000-year clock is just one of the Long Now Foundation's projects. They bring extinct species back to life. By using the DNA of extinct creatures, which is preserved in museum specimens and fossils, the full genomes of extinct animals can be read and analysed. By transferring that DNA into their closest living relatives, we can essentially bring extinct species back to life. And the curious thing is that there is this stage in which the it's their closest living relative, so it's an ordinary animal that we would recognise, but then it gives birth to an extinct creature, which is quite astonishing. Uh, they have done this with success, although um, so far they've all died within a couple of days. But this effectively blurs the line between what we think of the past, the present and the future. In the future, we could conceivably have more animals that are currently extinct than those which are currently alive. We could even bring back our friend, the mammoth. The thought of reviving extinct species is essentially a rather peculiarly backwards idea for a collective so concerned with the future. But people have long been interested in the mammoth. In 1906, a perfectly preserved mammoth was found in the permafrost of Siberia, and a rather eccentric scientist called Caleb Pink ventured out to bring it back to his lab in New York to perform a series of experiments on it. But we won't ever know what the result of those experiments might have been. Because before he could pack it in ice and ship it back, it was eaten by Tsar Nicholas II at a banquet in St. Petersburg. Because <laughs> that's what you do when you're the Tsar. <laughs> but there are sort of ethical concerns with the idea of bringing back extinct species. In the delightfully named How to Permit Your Mammoth, published in the Stanford Environmental Law Journal, Norman Carlin asks whether revived species ought to be protected by the Endangered Species Act or regulated as a genetically modified organism. And some conservationists just don't think they should be brought back at all. The Long Now Foundation has a seemingly endless list of bizarre projects. They uh, recently sent the world's languages to land on a comet 500 million miles from Earth. This is part of the Rosetta Disk Project, which is a disk of pure nickel inscribed with 1,500 languages, which can only be read by a microscope, uh, which has been sort of embedded in this space probe. And this year, uh, it landed on the poetically named Comet 67P, 500 million miles from Earth. It even founded the world's first long-term betting shop called, predictably enough, The Long Bet. And some of these bets are, um, are, quite, are quite interesting. They range from the, the thought-provoking, 
By 2060, the total population of humans on Earth will be less than it is today. To the political, by 2030, the apostrophe will have functionally disappeared from the English language. The aspirational, there will be a casino on the moon by 2040. I don't, what would you do with a casino on the moon? I don't really know. And they're rather passionate. Christopher Hitchens will publicly confess his sins to God, however he finds him between now and the time of his passing, and accept Christ as his Lord, Saviour and pathway to God. But he will do this in a meaningful rather than flippant, facetious or hypothetical fashion by surrendering his earthly will to God with all of his heart and soul. He didn't. But even if the long now is imperfect as a collective, its projects raise some very interesting questions. They do throw a little light on just how used we've become to thinking in terms of generations of people, not the life cycles of species or even stars. And that which moves with speed comes to dominate that which is slower. Our anthropocentric attention span is dominating the gentler paces of evolution. Interactive digital technology are radically altering our personal and collective perception of time, speeding up the pace of public and organised life. We're trading stocks via computer algorithms, putting increasingly global economy into very unstable hands, as uh, demonstrated by the flash crash in 2010. And our politics are speeding up to meet these ways of life, but our ethics desperately need to catch up. In order to avoid an as yet undefined cataclysmic end, maybe we need to reach a point in time where to act in disregard of our descendants is deemed entirely unacceptable. If you look back over history, such dramatic changes of outlook are, are definitely possible. We once believed in the sanctity of slavery, child labour and the subjugation of women. We believed that the world was flat and that wombs travelled round the body causing emotional turbulence. What I'm trying to say is that given how far we've come, it's not so improbable that we can overcome our deep disregard for future humans and deploy some empathy in the direction of the next thousand generations. And as Woody Allen said, eternity is a long time, especially towards the end. <laughs> There's a growing feeling in the world that the future may never come, as if we're living on the last page, if not the final paragraph, of a long, strange and bewildering book. But maybe it's just a matter of facing a future where anything could happen. Thank you. Rowan Dent there with the long now. I love that. I love the fact that the, the, that clock thing plays tunes for no apparent reason <laughs> at different points, and they're always different tunes. Mm. That's going to be a head-scratcher for a lot of people. It got me thinking about a course I did in Brighton many years ago, led by a chap called Richard Cupidi, whose area of interest was Native American culture. I remember him saying that the Iroquois, the way that they approached politics, was that the, the women of the group would decide which men they thought most appropriate to make decisions. And then they would meet in a tent together. The women would sit in silence on the, on the edges of the tent and the men would sit in the middle and they would talk and they would make decisions obviously related to the community. And the decisions that they made, they had to consider the implications on the following 40 generations. How every single decision 
what implications, what impact it would have over the next 40 generations. Boy. I mean, that's incredibly. Think about how short-lived and, and oh, yeah. how, how well, you know, politics in... in, in well, well also corporate structure. Corporate yeah, structure yeah, yeah. Is, is completely aimed at the now and for this year's profits and that's it. But I, I, I've got a similarly uh, impressive story in terms of time span. My father was uh, at Cambridge, uh, King's College, um, as a sort of part-time, you know, emeritus lecturer and while he was there he was told this story which was that one of the beams in 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 king's uh the great hall there uh was going this is a few years back and they didn't know what to do about it. it's an enormous pe- hewn out of a single piece of oak that had been shaped they would looked all over the place uh, to find a piece of oak that could be shaped this way and they couldn't find anything it's too big and so they thought well look we own a lot of land let's ask around our own landowners and see if anyone's got anything. And eventually, on university land, about 50 miles away, they found someone that said, oh, yes, we've been waiting for your call. And he said, what do you mean we've been waiting for your call? He said, we've been waiting about 800 years. What do you mean? He said, well, 800 years ago, the college, when it was being built, set aside a stand of trees on this land and instructed us to grow them with a series of uh, forming stilts to grow the trees into the correct shape to be replacement beams for the King's Hall when they were needed. So 800 years later, they came in handy. That's incredible. That's cracking, that's, isn't it? <laughs> that's forward thinking. That is forward that's planning. That's forward thinking for you. I see our producer, Lance, seems to be... Is he staggering be... around drunk? This is Lance, our producer, by the way, who's just, just wandered so in. You've pushed into the middle of your shirt. Yeah. Just a little bit of... Uh, you, brought some, you brought some alcohol. You're a good man. Nice. I've got a... a um, Anecdote about uh, that was poured over a computer. Cambridge, go on then. Which was um, when I went there years ago. A friend of mine was a fellow at mm-hmm. Cambridge. He's a mathematical genius, and we were sat at the kind of long table in the Great Hall. And um, right up on one of those rafters you mentioned was a little tiny rubber duck, right up above <laughs> our heads. And apparently, that rubber duck has been there for about forty, fifty years but no one knows how it gets up there. And they take it down. And then about a week later, it's it back up there again. And they don't know who or how they're getting on, but someone's passing on the information. <laughs> generation to generation of how to put the rubber duck back oh, up on the hall. That's fabulous. Now, Lance, you've brought us some potent-looking brew, which it's, is... which uh, is a scarlet colour. It no, is a scarlet, scarlet colour. Bright, bright purple. There's a violence to this. It looks like <laughs> Ribena gone, um, gone, gone to the dark side. It smells side. of beetroot. Oh, Ooh, in one. he's an smel- expert. It now. smells of beetroot. Oh my so, lord! Yeah, this is one of my absolute favourites. Beetroot vodka, beetroot vodka with a little hint of. Oh look, you're frowning. So this, is, this is this is sweetness to it. Well, that's the beetroot. Really? Yeah. Beetroot has that much sweetness in it's, it. Uh, there's no sugar in this at all. I tell you, it's very nice. It is. It is uh, weird, but nice. I quite I, like I, it. I, it's got I've a little got bit of horseradish in it. Ah. Wow. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to say, I, I don't like beetroot. I've, I've never, uh, never, the, we've never got on. But, ah. but mm. I rather like, in the same yeah. way that I, I have a real fondness for salty licorice vodka, I have a. I'm, oh, I, salty licorice vodka? Oh, it's a good one. Oh, don't do that to me now. It's oh. a good one. It's a good one. But this is, this is a good drink. This is very nice. This now, I just drink. have one question to answer about this. You know oh. how every time if you eat beetroot, forget you've eaten beetroot, uh. and then think you have bowel cancer the next day. Is it, is it, is it the same Oddly problem? enough, if you drink enough of this, if you drink yeah. about a bottle of this, <laughs> and then you'll get the impression that you're pissing the blood. Right. And it, actually, oddly enough, you are pissing blood. <laughs> so. Uh, <laughs> Give it a go, guys. Just finish this off. Anyone no else one's, no one's having their dinner whilst listening yeah, to this. Uh, we're talking about long form. 
longevity. Yes. I brought something in for you here. It's the message they put on nuclear sites where they put nuclear waste for disposal. Because uh, yeah. obviously half-life is billions and billions of years. 50,000 years. And they've got to think about future generations, how to explain to future generations that this site is... Not dangerous yeah. and they had to compose these plaques that they've placed on there never mind the plaques or rust i think they're carved into stone or something on yeah. the sites shall, shall i read the passage it's Please very do. poetic so this is going to mm. apply it's going to warn any generation for fifty thousand years that there's something dangerous Just there a... this place is a message and part of a system of messages pay attention to it sending this message was important to us we consider ourselves to be a powerful culture this place is not a place of honor no highly esteemed deed is commemorated here. Nothing is valued here. What is here is dangerous and repulsive to us. This message is a warning about danger. The danger is in a particular location. It increases towards the centre. The centre of danger is here, of a particular size and shape, and below us. The danger is still present in your time as it was in ours. The danger is to the body and it can kill. The form of the danger is an emanation of energy. The danger is unleashed only if you substantially disturb this place physically. This place is best shunned and left uninhabited. I've got nice. to say, if, the, if, if, if that's not an invitation to, <laughs> to go and... Do you know what I mean? To 14-year-old boys can, at working yeah, Exactly, yeah. exactly. You can see Indiana Jones sort of reading that by talking, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. pressing on regardless, you know. Yeah. Mm, that sounds good. <laughs> yes, oh, it's the rubber, it's vodka. Oh, it looks it's, quite dangerous and I shouldn't drink it. But it, is, that is, it is very poised. It's beautiful. But the, the tricky thing is finding anywhere to bury it. No one will accept it. No one will accept it. So we, we keep ours above ground where it's most dangerous. Lovely. Do we? Where do we keep yes. that? Yes, uh, Sellerfield and various other processing sites in temporary ponds. Yeah, a lot of it sitting in the ponds, yeah. isn't it? It's about as safe as a pair of trousers in a high wind. Are we being thrown out of the studio yet? Yes, we should be. It's about seven o'clock. We better go. So, um, okay. well, if we're going to get thrown out, we better we better go too. Shit. Okay, well, you do the end of the show first. Right. Well, I think we have pretty much, haven't we? Can yeah, we do what we did with the last one, where we just we just waffle on and then you? you oh no, up I'm the music. not having that happen again. That is not going to happen again. I don't think. Well, I don't think it should. It would be if that happens again. I am going to be furious. There would be something irritatingly postmodern about there would, about there? running and repeating running, it as dis- well. The discussion of I an ending, exactly. repeating from the previous yeah. one, and also the irony I mean, that this is. People are going to get bored of that. It's They're called the long bored. now. So obviously, exactly. what we do is we ramble on for ages before. The music, the music music faded in, in. and they're even dismantling the... Oh, right, he's unplugged that. <laughs> the Auditorium is presented by Dr David Bramwell and Mr David Mountfield. The producers are Lance Dan and Andrew Mayling. You can discover more about the show at oddpodcast.com, where you can find out about upcoming events and festival shows. If you'd like to give a talk about something that you're passionate about, then email us at contact at oddpodcast.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at oddpodcastuk. Talks from the Auditorium are featured in Earnest Journal, a magazine for the curious and adventurous. If you like the Auditorium, then please leave a review for us on iTunes. <laughs>